If there's one phrase that sums up the physical therapy profession, that phrase would be, it depends. Welcome to the Tales from the Plant podcast, where we will explore the notorious it depends phrase through interesting and in-depth interviews with physical therapists from all types of practice. Join us for inspiration, laughs, and tips and tricks in starting and improving your clinical practice. Welcome Welcome to to Tales Tales from from the Plant podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tales from the Plinth. Today, we are with Colleen White. Colleen, go ahead and say hi to everybody. Hi, everyone. Colleen, tell us a little bit about what you do. So, I am a pediatric physical therapist, and I specialize primarily in the neonative intensive care unit. So, I have been in the NICU for about four years, full-time or mostly... 70% of the time. So it's definitely a specialized field of pediatric physical therapy. um, And I love it. Wow. So you told us before um, we started the podcast, but you graduated in 2016 from Gannon. So give us a little timeline of, so you're in Texas now. So why don't you just give us a little timeline for maybe the time you were in Gannon to where you are now and kind of how your career has progressed. Sure. So when I went to Gannon for physical therapy school, I knew I wanted to do pediatrics, and then I did an independent study on um, physical therapy in the NICU. And then I explored the whole area and how specialized it was, and I did some shadowing at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also called CHOP, and the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And I was with a therapist at both of those, and I also shadowed nurses and nurse practitioners to kind of see what the whole... Nikki was about, and I absolutely loved it. So then that inspired me through a therapist that was at CHOP to apply to physical therapy pediatric residencies. And I specifically applied to the residency in at, or excuse me, <laughs> University of Central Arkansas. And so that meant that I was through the Arkansas Children's Hospital. So I applied to that in my last year of physical therapy school, got accepted graduated PT school in May of 2016, and then started my residency in August of 2016. After that, I, that was a year long, and <laughs> I got all kinds of pediatric experience. I was full-time employed at Arkansas Children's Hospital, so I got experience in pediatric inpatient rehab, the burn unit, the pediatric ICU, the neonative intensive care unit, the cardiovascular ICU, hematology and oncology. And so I worked and trained in those areas under pediatric certified specialists or other board certified specialists. And I also shadowed or learned about the other areas of pediatrics that were an outpatient through a company called Allied. And that was like the school system, preschools, outpatient pediatrics, home health pediatrics, hippotherapy, which is for those of you who don't know, it's therapy with horses, which is awesome. And then also I learned from the owner of that on how to own, run, and start your own clinic, which is pretty cool too. Wow, that's really cool. So what made you decide to go down the residency route? I know a lot of us are thinking about that right now, but trying to decide whether it's for us or not. So what kind of led you down that road? It was mostly the therapist I met at CHOP that kind of inspired me to even look down that path. But then I always knew I wanted to be a pediatric PT and I did not get enough knowledge or experience through PT school. Uh, Pediatrics is kind of this 
one course. I did my last 12-week rotation at Shriners in Erie, which was amazing. But it just didn't feel like enough. I didn't feel like I was going to be a good enough pediatric therapist. So I kind of wanted to get really intensely trained in it. And I really wanted to do inpatient. So I didn't have any experience in inpatient pediatrics. And I felt like to be the best therapist for these kiddos, I needed more training. Um, So I looked and I applied to three. And then I interviewed at one and went did that one. And it was, it was incredible. I would recommend a, a residency to anyone, especially if you feel like you don't know everything. You're never going to know everything. But surround yourself with people that are incredible. And then you, you can always ask questions. And it just inspires that constant learning, which I highly recommend. What's the pro- – so I guess because I'm actually in the process of kind of formulating like research studies with Kristen, trying to figure out like about – possibly applying for a residency after PT school. What's the interview process like? How competitive is it? So when I interviewed for the one through University of Central Arkansas, there, I I don't know how many people actually applied. I No, I applied to three different residencies and only got an interview with one. And there were five of us that were interviewed during the interview process. So I took my boards in April and then I literally flew the next day to Arkansas. It was quite a whirlwind. And I interviewed and it was a, I know mine was a whole day long interview process. It was exhausting. We started at 8 a.m. and I don't think we finished until 4.30. And it was constant interviews. And for anyone that's ever interviewing for anything, even if you're at lunch with someone, it is an interview. Like the whole day is an interview. You have to be on. Um, You have to be there to impress, even if it's just asking for directions to the bathroom, just constantly, that's constantly an interview. So um, I would definitely start looking at the residencies. I only applied to pediatric residencies that had NICU um, experience or that would introduce me to that. Uh, each Each residency typically says what they involve and I did pretty extensive research and then each application had anywhere from three to five essays. So I started writing those essays pretty early on just to make sure that they were well written and that I kind of got across how passionate I was about the field of pediatrics. So definitely start looking into what residencies you want to apply to because it's also kind of pricey to, to apply. Colleen, how difficult was it to, that sounds like it's pretty obviously a lot of work to do to write these essays and prepare for interviews. In the meantime, you're still doing clinicals and preparing for your boards and doing this and that. How? How tough was that to really kind of juggle all that in your last year of PT school when all these, you know, uncertainties are ahead too, whether it's, am I going to get into residency? Am I going to get a job? So how was, how hard was it to balance all of that stuff at once? Honestly, I'm having a hard time remembering that year because I think it went by so quickly and there was so much going on. Um, it It was definitely a lot, but I think you just have to prioritize. So obviously your clinicals and schoolwork come first. And then I studied for the boards every night after I got home from my clinical. And then I mostly looked into residencies and applied to those. Either I looked, probably looked into them laying in bed at night as I had a few extra minutes and then wrote my essays on the weekends when I had a little bit extra time. So I just would say prioritize these the things that are most important and I always do to-do lists. That's my thing. I have to cross things off. So, um, and you also need to take a break from studying for your boards because it can be a lot. So 
it was a break, take those breaks, um, do some stuff for yourself, hang out with your friends, um, do some things for yourself as well. So what do you think sets uh, students apart when you're applying to residency programs? Like what makes you a competitive applicant? I think you have to, especially the areas that you're going into, so pediatrics, I did that independent study and I had gone and shadowed at multiple children's hospitals and showing the initiative and also volunteer work. So if you can volunteer or shadow in certain areas that are pertinent to um, the field, so pediatrics, there's a lot of places you can volunteer, whether that's children's hospitals, whether it's um, Boys and Girls Club, I think having a good, solid understanding of what you're going to be doing, why you want to do it, and why you're passionate about it, and having that come through in your writing, I think that's your your application is your resume, which at this point is basically just your clinicals, which sometimes you can control them and sometimes you can't, and you guys know that. And but also you could kind of make up for that in other things you've done, add your volunteer work, add your interest, do research that you're interested in, ask the professors how you can help with other things, and just showing that you are passionate and it's really something that you want to do. I feel like that's gotten me most of my jobs is just my passion. So just have that come through in your writing and your interview, um, saying why you want to do what you want to do and just coming from a place from the heart. I think that's really important because people, people can see that. I love that. And so kind of switching gears a little bit here now, talking about something else you're super passionate about, um, your job in the NICU. I'm super curious, and I know these guys probably are too, what does the job of a NICU physical therapist look like? Seriously, everyone asks me this. People are like, oh, you're a physical therapist. Where do you work? And I'm like, I work in the NICU. And they're like, what? What can you do there? So it's definitely so different from probably everything we learn in physical therapy school. So primarily, I would say the number one role of a physical therapist in the NICU is to advocate for the parents and advocate and teach them how to take care of their baby. So the nurses are there that do that too. They're amazing. But also being the one that saying, this is your baby. I want you to take care of it, even though it's really scary, kind of explaining what a lot of the medical lines and leads and helping them understand that, um, that this is their child, even though that it's super sick and needs to be in the NICU, that we, that they're the parent and they're the most important person to that baby, which is I think a really important part and ha- helping them take care of that baby. So whether that's helping them change the diaper, to give a bath, and just empowering them to do those things. But from a physical therapy side, a lot of what we do initially is positioning. So these premature infants, which is typically what you see in the NICU, but we also see a lot of other diagnoses such as um, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which is HIE or Typically, it's kind of like a traumatic brain injury in an infant. So it happens either before birth, during the birth process, or immediately after. And it causes severe inflammation to the brain. And then they typically go on uh, therapeutic hypothermia or passive cooling, which they also do in spinal cord injuries and traumatic brain injuries. And that's a big population that we'll see. And they come in and we'll do positioning, congenital heart defects. Um, spina bifida. We, I mean, we see the whole gamut of stuff, but what we do is work on positioning. So the premature infants come in and they did not get that full fetal position in utero. So 
that's we call physiological flexion, where the baby is basically curled, where their head is kind of at their knees. And premature infants don't get that full time in utero, so they don't get that full flexion. And if you guys have taken your PEGS class, basically the full first year of motor development in infants is to work out of physiological flexion. But if you've never got in physiological flexion, you're only going to keep moving into extension. So you basically have to mimic that in utero environment and in all the positions. So we position them in both left and right side lying on their tummies and on their back. And we do physiological flexion in all of those is best we can, whether it's using blanket rolls, swaddles. We have lots of special positioners like bean bags and we use the dandelion products, but there's a lot of different NICU positioner companies out there that will, that we utilize and you position them so that their hands are towards their face, their knees are towards their belly, their shoulders are rounded forward, their hips are in, uh, for lack of a better word, posterior pelvic tilt, and you want them in that position because that's how they would grow in utero, and that's how you want the muscles to develop so that they can have the best opportunities once they start learning uh, the normal infant motor development. And we do all of that it also keeps them calm. So keeping them calm is essential for brain development and that we're basically there to maximize brain development because it's not happening in utero. So how can we improve their brain development when they're out in this loud NICU? So we try to minimize sounds, we try to minimize light, we try to minimize any kind of stress. Um, So we really only touch them, the nurses, the doctors, therapists, when they're really young, only every six hours, and when they get a little older, it's either every four or every three hours. Wow, that's that's wild. Okay, so I have a couple questions now. <laughs> My first question is, has it? Because it just hit me. Has it ever crossed your mind the fact that like you're playing like a pretty significant role in these babies' development in their future lives? Because like I think it's like you're like regular outpatient physical therapist. Someone comes in with like knee pain or something. So we're going to try to get you better, but if I don't, it's not like catastrophically bad. Like you just kind of live with it. You know what I mean? Not to say that, that they're not going to get them better, but you get my point, right? In your yeah. case, it's like you are facilitating normal developmental milestones and all that stuff. I mean, that's got to be something that you had to get adjusted to, right? Yeah, I think so. Sometimes when you think about it that way, when someone brings it up, because I go in and do with this every day and it's you think about why you do it and you know why you do it, but you don't think about the impact. But actually yesterday we restarted our Nikki follow-up clinic for the first time since COVID. And we see these kiddos, whether they're one to eight years old and what they look like and what the impact of things we do in the NICU affect them later, whether that's their toe walk because we do all of their heel sticks and they don't want to walk on their heels because they had so much negative touch to their heel and so much pain that this is something that they walk on their toes because they have sensory processing issues of putting their heels down and it's it's you think about all these things and how we can improve them so we talk a lot about positive touch in the NICU there's so much necessary negative touch that the positive touch needs to outweigh so whether that's through massage whether that's through empowering the parents to kiss their, their baby's feet or blow on them, things that they would do at home to have them do in the NICU, which is kind of hard right now with COVID and parents having to wear masks. But having to see the impact, I think, really affects us when we see them and knowing that we, we are there, especially as therapists, to advocate for these babies um, because we, 
more so know what they're going to look like in a few years, whereas most NICU nurses, neonatal nurse practitioners, and neonatologists, a lot of their training was focused on that first 12, 12 months, and they don't sometimes see the long picture, long-term picture, so we kind of are advocating to the nurses, hey, can you cover their eyes? Hey, can we stop talking so loud, or is this necessary to be talking about every time we're touching the baby? Usually we'll go in there and it's more sometimes just advocating, like turning down the lights, taking the cell phones that we have for, I don't know, our, our hospital has cell phones that are ring really loud. So we don't take those into our really tiny baby's rooms. We turn down the ringer. We turn off the alarms if we're in there and watching them. That way it's just not all these loud sounds or bright lights or we're touching them with the most care that's possible. So a lot of times we'll go in while the nurse is changing the diaper and what we do is contain the baby, so hold their arms or give them a pacifier and give them calming techniques while they're doing just uncomfortable things so that we have as much positive experience while also minimizing as much stress as possible because that cortisol really inhibits blood flow to the brain, which is not good for brain development. Wow. So it sounds like... Is that you're... Yeah, that no, that's a great answer. And so like I'm noticing in like the common theme that I'm getting is not only is your treatment like literally life changing, but you're employing a lot of techniques that kind of like you said, you don't really learn in like that physical therapy school kind of thing. So like I'm assuming like you learn most of that through your residency and then kind of on the job training as well. Yeah, a lot of it. And then even continuing education courses. And there's a lot of resources online for NICU therapists. So there's the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, which is NANT. They have a lot of great resources. There's honestly really good Instagram um, accounts of a few neonatal therapists that are really good for both. They're both the two girls that I follow are parents of previous premature infants or um, infants that were in the NICU and then they're also therapists in the NICU and they really have awesome stuff that um, I follow just because it's it's a good reminder of like why we do what we do and because I think for anyone that's just in a job in general you kind of just get into the day-to-day of doing your job versus thinking about the large impact so constantly having a reminder of why you do what you do I think the biggest thing that is amazing that I love is the reason I do what I do is the first time you have help a parent hold their infant that they it's been maybe weeks they've been intubated they were super sick they have lines in their belly button and they weren't able to hold them and then you help them hold them and the parents crying I've cried a couple times like it's so beautiful so it's just helping because sometimes these parents have this unexpected NICU stay and they weren't they had this child that they expected to have and then this is a totally different child so knowing that psychology behind the whole parent infant bond and then helping them regain that that bond that they kind of lost in that loss of expectation of the child they thought they would have versus the child that they do have so i think having a lot of knowing the parent infant the whole psychology postpartum depression having that whole understanding is also a whole side of this field that is very very different and i know i could still even learn a lot about it for sure yeah being a lifelong learner is like super important Mm-hmm. Um, another question I had is how do you go about educating a parent on like like you said when they have an infant that they do have compared to what they expected to have and like them seeing how fragile that infant's life is like how do you go about giving them confidence to to handle the baby and to and to do those things I think 
we just, I like to empower them and say, this is your baby and you are the most important person and the person that's going to keep them the most calm. So if you ever watch a nurse or a therapist or anyone else change a diaper and you watch a parent do it, and even if they have never done it and it looks so, they're, they're just don't know what they're doing, the baby's way more calm when the parent does it. And it's just, they have that parent smell, they the parents usually doing it without gloves um, because they don't need to wear gloves. We wear gloves for infection and they're just way more calm. So saying like, they're going to be more calm if you do it, they're going to love it more. You do it and saying, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be smooth. It doesn't, as long as you do it, that's the most important thing and making sure they're comfortable. So sometimes the nurse or we will have them contain the arms while we change the diaper and then they get more confident and be like, Oh, I could do that. That's not that bad. And just kind of constantly introducing offering. Sometimes, like I said, we get into the daily routine and either the nurses or we'll just go in and do all of what we call the baby's cares, take their temperature, their blood pressure, but empowering the parents, like these are things you can do. These aren't hard. And a lot of times explaining which lines are, more essential than the others. The EKG lines and the pulse ox are, if you pull those, it's not the end of the world. Your baby will probably cry a tiny bit because it came off their skin, but that's not the end of the world. And explaining which lines are a little bit more important. And if they came out, you know, to be a little bit more careful with them, explaining those things, because those are things that we already know, but they don't know them. And talking about like, it's okay, we'll figure it out. Like more so making it not a huge deal and just explaining. I think education is huge and doing that with, for the parents. Yeah, that's, yeah. Education is a huge part of PT and I think people kind of, I don't know if they forget about it, but especially with, um, being in a hospital setting, you know, providing that family education is super important and we're kind of learning that now. Um, so the question I had was what, got you interested in I guess just pediatrics in general but also that kind of NICU setting for physical therapy I I think I initially was wanted to go into physical therapy because I what I saw an athletic trainer and I was like that looks really cool and then I didn't really like the hours of athletic training or the pay so I was like okay what else could I do that's similar and then physical therapy really got to me and this was in high school and then I used to teach dance and I had a few girls with Down syndrome in my dance class and I really loved teaching them how to move through kind of the dance route and then I was like oh my gosh this could definitely be some sort of physical therapy and then there that's kind of how I knew I wanted to be a physical therapist and then I kind of got into the I went to grade school with kids with special needs I went to an all-inclusive Catholic high school or Catholic grade school and I really, really was inspired by all kinds of kids with learning disabilities or autism or cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy. I was just really exposed to them at a really early age and just really wanted to help, help other kids just kind of do everything they could, participate, which is a huge part of um, physical therapy in general and pediatrics is, you know, participation in just normal activities so however I could help with that it's kind of what got me into it nice thanks thanks for that Colleen that was great um so you had you had mentioned to us that you want to talk a little bit about like the different levels of the NICU you want to get into that a little bit sure so there's basically four levels of NICUs um 
there is the level one, which is just a newborn nursery, technically not really even an NICU. So you go to a hospital and you have a baby um, and your baby is in, in your postpartum room where the mom is, you can take them to the nursery. The, there are newborn nursery nurses that will feed them or let them sleep. And that basically no specialty care. That's just normal infants go to the newborn nursery. And then level two NICUs are probably the majority of NICUs. And those are just in the community and take care of babies that are born after 32 weeks. So normal gestation is 40 weeks and preterm infants are considered anything before 37 weeks. So it would be basically 32 to 37 weekers that are more than, with babies we go by grams, so it's 15, greater than 1,500 grams, but that's 3.3 pounds. So kind of a small baby, and that need certain levels of oxygen because their lungs might not be fully developed. So that's a level two. A level three is um, any baby born at any age that needs some sort of subspecialty care um, they can do all kinds of respiratory supports, whether that's a ventilator, a C bubble CPAP, which is similar to what people sleep with sleep apnea, but it's for babies, um, or a nasal cannula, and they have advanced imaging. So that's, if your baby is a little bit sicker, they'll go to a level three or um, more so in a regional setting, which is typically children's hospitals, but also other hospitals have a level four, which is the highest level of NICU care. So it's all ages. Um, mostly it's, they have all the surgery subspecialties that you would need if they needed some kind of, kind of surgery for congenital or acquired conditions. So do they have a heart defect? Do they have, uh, some babies are born with their intestines on the outside, um, whether it's spina bifida and they, those level four also have to be able to facilitate transportation to and from. So if a baby's born at a different hospital, but they need higher level care, those level four need to go and get them, whether it's a helicopter or an ambulance, or even I've had some go on planes, um, depending on what they need. And then they also can do ECMO. Um, and both level three and level four NICUs need to have therapists in them to be considered a level three or four NICU. So I think that's pretty important that though they realize the importance of the long-term developmental outcomes and how therapists can facilitate those. Okay, so you work kind of like in a level three or level four. Yeah, I've gotcha. typically worked in the level four. Um, I worked at Texas Children's Hospital and Arkansas Children's Hospitals, and those were both very large level four NICUs. And then my current one is also level four, but has a little, a few less subspecialties, so sometimes they need to be transferred out. But I think the coolest thing was at Texas Children's, they did uh, in fetal surgery, so they did myelomeningocele repairs, they did congenital diaphragmatic hernias, twin-to-twin um, -twin transfusion syndrome, and basically they had fetal surgeons that the mom would come into the OR, have a, it's typically microscopic surgery, they go in, they repair the defect, and then the mom has to stay within a few miles of the hospital until the remainder of her um, gestation, and then when the baby's born, they're born, they birthed them at children's and they would come to you for either the continued care or just the follow-up typically for seven days but some really amazing outcomes with those fetal surgeries because of all the amazing stuff that continues to happen in utero um, that can't happen outside after after just because of all the stem cells and everything that's happening in utero right yeah there's so much that I know that I think most people don't even understand that is possible these days and that's mm -hmm. myself included so hearing that is really cool something mm -hmm. you said during when you were explaining that prompted 
this question from me. So you talk about things like babies can be born with intestines on the outside and all these just like terrible like conditions. And I mean, I don't know, I don't wanna make any assumptions, but I'm sure that sometimes outcomes are not that great. You know, and I know for me, I think it would be hard for me to swallow that sometimes, like going home after having to see stuff like that, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So how, how do you kind of manage that? Like, do you, is there, I don't want to say you get numb to it after a while, but do you feel like after you're around the, that, that you kind of find strategies to cope better when things don't go right? Or is it a thing that never really does go away? Like, is it, is it always kind of there in the back of your mind? I think you definitely, it's definitely not for everyone. Um, it's definitely something that I think the things that hit me harder are the unexpected. So when a baby's was born super premature and then they've been, they've lived for a month or a month and a half and then they pass because of complications with sepsis and that come on really fast that I was, didn't foresee coming. So I think I like to give myself expectations for every baby on whether like realistic on whether or not how, how their outcomes are going to be. And, um, for that's for just for myself, for my own coping skills and knowing, you know, to invest emotionally. Um, that's just, you obviously get emotional with, I get like, I love all my patients, but how much you invest in them and, um, from your own self stand, your own standpoint and just, I think just setting realistic expectations, but sometimes just knowing that you can take a few minutes to, if you are upset, if there was something that happened, take that time. But I think I've, I've, I've always just kind of been able to see the bigger picture on um, knowing that if I'm upset to give myself that time, but there's a lot of other babies and a lot of other families that need me. So going and looking forward to those as well and helping them as much as I can. Thank you. That's great, Colleen. That's great. Absolutely. And so to get to a kind of a lighter note, I saw in your email when I was reading it over that you became board certified in pediatrics in 2019. So yeah. congratulations on that. Thank and I actually wanted to talk about some of your previous work experience. Namely, okay. um, the NICU in Texas, you said that it had 173 beds in it. How do you go about managing that sort of volume? I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, it was massive. There were, I think, 10 of us full-time therapists there. Wow. So kind of separating it from that aspect, we each had, NICUs tend to have pods. That's what we consider them. And we would typically have anywhere from one to two pods that we managed. And then we would help the other therapists out if needed. Um, so they were more manageable numbers. I'd probably say I had anywhere from 20 to 35 babies to myself. And you typically just set their plan of care based on what they need and how much they can handle. So babies that are sicker cannot handle long treatment. Sometimes your treatment is eight minutes long and that's, you're doing eight minutes because that's what you can bill for. Um, and sometimes the older babies that you are in the hospital for eight months that need that developmental playtime, you spend an hour and a half with, if that's what they can, if that's what they're able to do. And a lot of that is sometimes you have to take breaks because a baby just can't handle to be hit played with for an hour and a half. So, you know, you read a book and 
you do other therapies that are important, so speech therapy, and you're kind of incorporating as a neonatal therapist all the other things. So I think it's important. You work really closely with the occupational therapist and the speech therapist and the child life specialist and how to incorporate normal infant development in the NICU. So one of the things that you kind of caught my attention during that too is like basing on how much they can handle. I'm assuming that they're pretty prone to crying just in general. So like, what do you use as a physical therapist to kind of like gauge what your treatment should be, what their plan of care should be, and how intense your approach is? Sure. So more so handle, I should have explained this. So in the NICU, the big things that you look for during your treatment session are the first one is you want them to be physiologically stable. So a lot of our really young babies, every time you touch them, they will have oxygen desaturations. Their heart rate will drop below 100. The normal heart rate is 100 to about 160, but it can go up to 200. And the respiratory rate, sometimes they'll just go apneic. They'll stop breathing. So the first thing you want to make sure of anything you're touching, if you're doing daily cares, is that they are stable. So how do you get them there? And typically when they're born before 32 weeks, that's the whole goal is every time they're touched is to make sure they're physiologically stable. So then the next thing, if they are physiologically stable, is you want to work on their state regulation, which that means there's, uh, Brazelton talks about how there are six states of an infant. The first one's deep sleep, light sleep, then light sleep, then drowsy state, then quiet alert, then active alert, and then fuss, crying and fussing. And you want them in a either a drowsy to active alert state. So you kind of want them in a calm or awake state. And if you can't get they're either shut down and asleep, that's not a good state. Typically that means they're completely overwhelmed. Or if they're crying and fussing, they're not happy either. And if they're hungry, then that's fine. They're, they can be hungry and fussing. <laughs> that's a reasonable thing to be fussing for. So that's your number two. And then you can start working on anything developmental. So we can't do any developmental outcomes or work on tummy time or anything until you've hit those first two. So when I say that they can't handle it, it's typically that their oxygen desaturations are below, I, I mean, we see babies that drop all the way down to 5%. And then you have to have the respiratory therapist come in and they have to increase their, typically that's when they're intubated or their heart rate will drop to below 20. And these are just things that you have to you have to get their physiological state stable. And then when that, sometimes if they're touched for longer than even 10 minutes, then that, and even if you're doing everything right and everything calming and you're going slow, they still won't tolerate it. And that's just because their brains are so immature and their brainstem is very immature and they're not able to, their body isn't able to handle that because typically they'd be in euro and that they wouldn't be touched. So I think that's, that's typically what I mean by their, their handling. So, we try to, to go slow with them. Typically what I'll do is they're in an isolate. I'll open the isolate um, and then I'll say like good morning in a really low voice. And then I'll wait sometimes a minute, sometimes two minutes. And then I'll just put my hands on them. And then I'll wait a couple more minutes and see if their, their vital signs will stabilize with that. So you have to really slowly introduce touch and sound, which is about to happen to them. So just kind of getting them ready, preparing the baby for any kind of intervention, even if it's just a diaper change. Wow. I think it's kind of crazy <laughs> that like, stressed out. I just, I, I, was, I don't think, I don't know if I 
have like myself could have the personality and just the awareness to do that like it's because they're so delicate right like you said just touching can make such an impact like that and i think it's kind of i think it's interesting because like you kind of said when people think of physical therapy some people will call it pain and torture right like we're just cranking on people and stretching them and this and it's like yours is a complete opposite you know you're just you're like you said you're waiting two minutes sometimes just to see if they respond to a verbal you know sensation and then you're just touching them like lightly and the fact that that can change you know physiologic vital signs so much is just like you have to be like you talked about your interview process having to be on all the time like you don't you have to be on all the time like is that right like you don't get a, you don't get five seconds to be like I'm stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be stressed. It's super rewarding. It's I think you your brain cannot work on a sink. You have to know what the monitor says while you're also looking at the baby. And a lot of times if you're if you're in tune enough with if you do it this long enough, you can look at the baby and know that their heart rate's about to drop before the monitor will show you. So they'll just do something and you're like, Oh, this is not we need to change something and then the monitor will go off. And you knowing that like you're there you're the one that you you can be secure in knowing that oh it's okay and that giving that parents that assurance and but also i can't change things from an oxygen standpoint so i know how to rely on the nurses and the respiratory therapists that are there with me and typically there's more than two of us in there with, with the really sick babies every time we touch them so relying on this multidisciplinary approach and knowing that we each have our role and knowing when to switch and who needs to be in there um, is a really important part. So just, it's kind of a constant dance, to be honest, and and you have to not really slip up or make a, can't step with the wrong foot or step on someone else's foot mm. or else the baby. <laughs> Dave's not a good answer. He's stressing out even more. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. So I know you said, obviously this does take a kind of special person to be in this kind of setting what do you think um makes a good pediatric NICU therapist I think that's a really good question I think one big thing is to be a constant learner but also knowing all of your limits so um I think the best therapists that I have met are constantly asking questions and asking for help and saying that they don't know everything and acknowledging that. And I think the more you acknowledge that you don't know, the more you will actually know and the more you actually do do know. So I think just being aware of, of what your skills are and how to make them better and being a caring and compassionate and, um, I don't know, just upbeat and that I think those are all important things that people yeah. feed off of. So people want someone that has positive energy in this setting that can be um, difficult at times, especially for parents or families or even the staff when there's a when there's a difficult day. Yeah, I'm sure. So I have a couple questions, Colleen. So I was just going back again to the, the really just sensitive nature of like what you do, honestly. So and I, I just want to know, like, I feel personally, I feel like women have a natural kind of knack of being nurturers and having this like motherly touch to them or the way they can kind of comfort people if, you know, they're down. 
do you see in the NICU and maybe throughout your career that it's the majority women that are working or is it kind of 50-50 or how does that split look like? I think it's 98 women, 98% women, 2% men. Uh, I'd say the most amount of men in the NICU are typically neonatologists, so the doctors. And there's a few male nurses and they do amazing as well. I've, uh, there was a male physical therapist that I worked with and at Texas Children's and I work with a male speech therapist at my current job and they do amazing jobs too. But I, I definitely think there's a personality that comes in in the NICU setting um, and I, it's typically nurturers that, it, that just want to constantly help. So it's definitely a really rewarding field, but also people that um, like a challenge. It's definitely challenging every day. So, um, and as a therapist, you're constantly having to take 10 pieces of information and change your, like art, my treatment session. I never know what it's going to look like because that just depends all on the baby. So being able to constantly be on your toes, that's really just being able to adapt to any situation. And sometimes the situation changes in a, in a second's notice. So I just want to say that I think that what you do is amazing. I've been sitting over here freaking out the whole time because it's just, it's very intimidating what you described to me, especially as someone who is still in PT school. But on that same note, since we are in PT school and we are going to clinic and we're going to wrap up here shortly, what advice do you have for any of the PT students listening to this about, you know, clinic, upcoming graduation and stuff like that? I think the thing that I've learned and pediatrics has taught me that is actually, I think if I knew it as a student or was better at, um, better at looking at it is, was take every patient. If someone comes in with knee pain as a whole, because there is probably not just knee pain and that there's something else that probably led to that and listening to your patient because they may tell you a lot of things that, you might give them exercises, but they can't do them because they work three jobs and just taking everything into consideration because it'll make you so much better of a therapist and not just focusing on that, whether it's one area or, and then really understanding what, what drives them. So why do they want to get better and how you can, I think that'll really make you a better, better fit therapist and really make your patients appreciate you um, because they they know that you care and you can really do that by looking at all of them, not just their body, but also what they do, who they are, what their family life is like. And I think that's really important. And knowing that you're not just treating the the knee pain or the shoulder pain or back pain, you're treating the whole person. So I think that's pretty important. All right. I'm going to tell my CI, I talked to Colleen White and I know what I'm doing now. All right. Thank you so all much right, for your time, right. Colleen. I hope you had some fun. Yeah. Feel free to reach out if you ever need or anything with pediatrics or want to work in the NICU or want a shadow. I'm happy to. Thanks, Colleen. Wait, where are you in Texas? Me. Where are you in Texas? I'm in Austin. Okay. Longhorns. All right. I gotta, ask, <laughs> I gotta ask a quick question, Colleen. So. Yeah. I'm stressing out hardcore. Like I kind of want to move, but same time, kind of not. Like I've heard Texas is kind of cool. Like, is it is yeah. it super cool? Is it super dope? Yes. Weather top notch. Um, except for that snowstorm. So 
I mean, I've moved, I moved to Arkansas, then I moved to Houston, and then I moved to Austin. So I highly recommend moving. I think it's great for your, not just like, so my PT career, I have learned so many different things because things change based on where you are in the country. Like, not, I mean, not PT, but how people are, certain ways they treat, and just, I know dry needling is huge down here. I don't know if it's huge in Pennsylvania, but there's, there are certain even techniques that you can learn different places that people are more into. So I highly, I'm huge on moving. I think it's really good for you as a person to grow, um, just kind of adventure out, get away from all the things you know. I think it makes you a more well-rounded person and um, helps you grow with just being a person and also being a therapist. I think you learn a lot of different stuff. So I'm big on moving. Let's go, let's go, Dave. I'm moving to Texas. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Congrats on finishing your second year. Thank Thank you. you.